You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. John chapter 15, verses 12 to 17. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our Old Testament reading and sermon text for today is Ecclesiastes 4. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead, who were already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has, has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind." The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And although a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A three-cord a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old, foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though his own kingdom he had been sorry, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Let's pray. Father, you've shown us now what lays underneath 
and behind the vapor. Pray now, God, that you would teach us over the next few weeks how to navigate the vapor, how to live in the midst of the vapor, knowing where it all comes from. So God, instruct us from your word, help us to learn wisdom, how to live skillfully and well in this world. Speak now. In your name we pray, amen. Uh, Robert Putnam uh, wrote a book, a sociological study, uh, several decades ago, um, and I think the problem that he names in this book has actually gotten far, far worse over the last few decades. The title of that book was Bowling Alone. Um, He made the observation that social institutions were collapsing um, in our country, that things simply like bowling leagues uh, didn't really exist much more. Um, that people uh, didn't go to church anymore. They weren't part of civic conversations and relationships anymore. And because of those sorts of institutions and their collapse, um, the whole notion of friendship was beginning to collapse in our society and it was leading to a, a kind of um, absolute isolation that was destroying um, the fabric of society. Um, I don't think he named a problem several decades ago that's gotten better. I think he named one that's actually gotten worse. That despite um, all of the technological advances that seem to and have promised to connect us more deeply than ever to one another, um, the latest technological announcement um, was a way to constantly be on your screen and utterly isolated from everyone around you with some sort of technological goggles that they announced a few weeks ago from Apple. Uh, We live in a day and age of increasing isolation. Um, A few years ago, uh, we were with Jenny's family, um, and uh, we were spending a week together up in the mountains, um, and they had arranged for us to go snowmobiling one day. And so we were riding in the bus, and I struck up a conversation with the bus driver um, because I thought, well, it's just an interesting profession, don't you think? take people on snowmobiling rides. Like, how do you, like, most, I haven't met a high schooler who says, you know what I want to do? When I turn 22, I want to take snowmobiling tours. Um, So I thought it was interesting, who is this guy? And I I got to hear the story of this young man. He kind of just started sharing everything about his life. Uh, Now, with a grain of salt, he clearly enjoyed smoking things um, quite often, um, but uh, one of the interesting things about this guy is that he was a nomadic worker. So, so he um, would come to Colorado in the winter, um, and he would uh, be a, a ski instructor part-time and lead snowmobiling tours part of the time. Uh, in the spring and summer, he would move to different parts of the country to take on other um, different kinds of work, um, and he didn't have a pattern. He wouldn't return to the same place every season or every year. Um, Instead, he would go to a new place and, um, as he described it, make all new friends and meet all new people. Um, He rarely, if ever, saw his family. He didn't really tend to go home on holidays as he had to work. Um, And as I was sitting there hearing him describe um, what would be for many, uh, at least probably millennials, um, the ideal life, this nomadic life of just getting paid to go lead people, having fun, Um, place after place after place um, with never really having a home and never really having a family and never having really people who knew him and actually knew what his life was about. It it struck me um, in reflecting on his talk, I didn't share this with him at the time, um, that what 
a tragic life. In fact, the scriptures will tell us that a nomadic life, a life with no roots, a life with no home, a life with no family, a life with no um, a deeply interconnected dependency in which we love one another and care for one another and have people to pick us up off the ground, or as this text says, just keep us warm at night, um, uh, that is espoused in scripture not as an ideal life, not as something to be desired, but, but actually as a life that's cursed, to, to live in exile to be isolated from family and friends, to, to never have a place to go back to that's, um, that, that is a mark of love and care and relationship and friendship, real friendship, not seasonal friendships or, um, or bite-sized friendships like you get on a plane sometimes. But friendships that last, friendships that you can depend upon, people that you can call upon. Um, That is being lost in our culture. And it's fascinating that today's Father's Day. I think this is particularly true for men in our culture. It's some sort of strange combination of kind of the um, isolated, uh, ideal man who who can just stand on his own two feet and do everything on his own, Um, combined with the kind of technological isolation that we feel um, combined with kind of the, um, the overall diagnosis of our culture of masculinity that it is by definition toxic and abusive and bad. Um, this has led to uh, a, an epidemic of men leading isolated lives. Today, Solomon is going to, as we turn from um, him establishing what I think is the most foundational theological truth in all of Ecclesiastes, uh, maybe in all of the Bible, Um, it's everywhere in the Bible, but establishing that truth in chapter 3, he's going to move on to begin to address the question of the next few chapters, beginning with here in chapter 4, with given that this is how the world is, here's how the world actually functions and operates. Here's the only way we can make sense of any of it. Um, He's then now going to begin to address the question, okay, how do you live well in a world like that? Um, Just to refresh your memory, uh, the the theological truth or foundation that he established in chapter 3 is the pervasive sovereignty of God over the vapor. The contrast in chapters 1 and 2 over against chapters 3 is chapters 1 and 2 was essentially a testimony that you and I can control nothing. We can't uh, make anything happen according to our wills. We can't make the sun stop coming up. We we can't um, find any sort of permanence um, or lasting meaning in pleasure or in work or in making a name for ourselves. Um, If you'll remember, pleasure fades Um, In your work, someday uh, someone's going to take over that job or take over the wealth you earned and who knows what they're going to do with it. Um, You can't really find any lasting permanence in making a name for yourself. Your great-grandchildren won't remember your name. Um, That was contrasted in chapter 3 with the all-pervasive permanence and sovereignty of God that he appoints Seasons. Seasons that you don't get to dictate to him. Seasons of laughter and seasons of mourning. Seasons of peacemaking and seasons of war. Seasons of tearing down and seasons of building up. 
These come from somewhere. And those, the place that it comes from is under the appointment or the sovereignty of God. Such that we live in a world, um, we live lives that are not shepherdable on our own. We don't get to direct and decide, you know what, this feels like it might be a great season for laughter. I'm going to feel laughed. I'm going to laugh a lot this season. I mean, you can, but that would be weird. Like something bad happens and you just decide this is a laughter season. I'm going to laugh. It'll be odd. Or you decide this is a season of mourning and tears and something great happens in your life. You get married and you're in Decided this is the season you're in, so you're sobbing at the altar, but not out of joy, but out of sorrow. I mean, that's, that's not the way the world is. Instead, what the world is, is a series of wave upon wave upon wave, of vapor and vapor and vapor, of wind, of substance that comes at you that you don't decide beforehand what's coming at you. But those seasons are appointed, they're directed, they're sent, they're given by God who rules everything. And in Solomon's conclusion in chapter 3, if this is how the world is, then the best sort of life is life that is postured at receiving life as a gift. And what does he say to do? Eat your food, drink your wine, do what's right, obey the law of God, and try to enjoy your work. In other words, if God is sending seasons to you, then the way you navigate life is not to try to control what season you're stepping into. It's not to try to manage and control the wind. It is instead to feel the wind and then eat your food, barbecue usually, Drink your wine, Capsav. Obey the law of God. Do what's right, right now. And enjoy your work. So there's your theological foundation for how to live well in a world that you're not in control of. In fact, lives that you're not ultimately in control of. How do you live well? Enjoy lunch today. That's the next thing you can do. Tonight, if you want, enjoy a glass of wine. And really enjoy it. Because you have it in your hand tonight. You should enjoy what God puts in your hand tonight. Third, know what God commands you, how God has called you to live and obey him in the world, do it. Try to do it. Repent of not doing it. Ask for mercy. We have a merciful God. And then do it. And last, when you go to work tomorrow, even if you're an accountant, try to enjoy it. We have several accountants in here, over here. I don't know how. You should enjoy your spreadsheets. So, that was what he established for us last week. And then he gave us a clue as to where things are going to be headed this week.
And the clue was um, he took two of uh, what should be the most stable, trustworthy institutions that God has established on earth. He spoke of the place of justice or the government, (laughs) the magistrate, and he spoke of the church. What did he say? Here's what, in our minds, and in terms of even the biblical narrative, here are two places where if you're going to find anything solid, anything trustworthy, anything to be trusted, here's where you're going to find it. How's that going? He says, if you go down the street, Solomon says, a long time ago, you're going to find in the place of justice, which is that building right over there, you're going to find wickedness. Nothing stable. Constant shifting. If you go to church, guess what you're going to find there? You're going to find wickedness there. I've met with lots and lots of people through the years who found their way into churches and found out there were people who sin in churches. It's very strange. So, so that you'll, none of you will be surprised, particularly if you're new here, you will likely meet someone in this room. I could point out a few to you if you need to know who to avoid. You will likely meet some people here who will sin, and they may even sin against you. Solomon warned you about this. If you go down the street, you're going to find sin, wickedness, even there. Even with like the gold dome thing. Sin will be there. You come into here, gathering in the name of God to worship because of the work of Jesus, which should be a clue. Since Jesus died on the cross for sin, that you might find in this room a couple anyway of particularly sinful people. Yes, I'm talking about you. This is a joke. So, so that's what he, he left us. God sends seasons, seasons that you don't manage, you just respond to. So you should live receiving those seasons, eating your food, obeying God, and trying to enjoy your work. So how now, starting in chapter 4, do we navigate a world like that? Let me give away the store before I try to explain the store. His answer in chapter 4 will be, you do not do it alone. That's the whole, the whole chapter, all this stuff. If you want to know what it says, here's what it says. Don't navigate the vapor by yourself. You weren't meant to. One of the beautiful additions that chapter 4 brings to the the, the, the glorious and frightening and difficult doctrine of chapter 3 is, and God didn't design you and I to navigate a world like that without other people around us. You can't. And what he's going to point to in this chapter is a series of images or stories or things that he observes about the world. Remember that Solomon is 
an observer. He's describing what he's seen, what he's seen in his own heart, what he's seen in the fruit of his own life. And now he's going to look around at him. I think some of this is autobiographical. Um, and he's going to describe for us um, the, the tragedy of trying to navigate a world like the one he described in chapter 3 without friends. Why you must have friends. So, let's look at a series of images and consider how he makes his case. First you have verses 1 through 3. This um, is a notorious paragraph. Uh, people condemning Solomon um, for what he actually doesn't say here. He says this, Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. Behold, the tears of the oppressed. They had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. We need to notice a phrase that's repeated here, which tells us Solomon's emphasis in this paragraph. His emphasis in this paragraph is not, it would have been better if you were never born. His emphasis in this paragraph is, there are people out there, and maybe in here, with power. And oftentimes, they use that power to hurt people. They sin against others. And if there's no one to comfort you, there's a repeated phrase, it would have been better to never be born. In other words, you shouldn't face all the evils done by men and women under the sun alone. You and I need someone to comfort us. So, that's his first point. The reason why you don't navigate the vapor in a world like the one described in chapter 3 by yourself is then you would have no one to comfort you. He's already told us God is sending to you times of mourning. That's coming. Just prepare yourself. A season is coming for you, marked mourning, grief. I don't know what that will be for you. But it may be directly due to the sin of others. And woe be to you if you have no one nearby to comfort you. I've faced seasons of grief. Grief caused not by my own sin. Grief caused not by disease or just natural occurrences. Grief directly caused by the sin of others. And you know what was precious beyond words during that season? What actually I would look back on those seasons and say they were sweet. Never want to go through them again. A friend named Jay 
A friend named Doug. Friends named Matt and Chase. Who picked me up and comforted me. You need someone to comfort you. Do not navigate the vapor alone. Next, verses 4 through 6. And I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity, vapor, and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness or contentment than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. He describes here the nature of work. And he looks out at the world and what he sees is most people are motivated by envy. I'm Rene Girard. Uh, I don't even know how to describe what kind of person he is. He's French. Maybe that's enough. <laughs> He's French and dead. Um, so Rene Girard uh, made the observation that essentially all of life is um, a gravitational uh, kind of corruption in the world between the two poles of the first commandment and the tenth. The tenth commandment is what? You shall not envy, covet your neighbor's, well then it's a whole list of neighbor's stuff. That, that what divides the world, what, what creates violence in the world, what creates destruction in the world is a refusal to worship God alone manifesting itself in a pervasive kind of envy that drives all of society. Gerard was simply repeating in many places what Solomon observes here. You see what your neighbor has and you want it and you envy him for it. And so all of your hard work, all of your toil, all of your ingenuity is born not out of a desire to love someone else, but instead a desire to have or ultimately even to take what your neighbor has. Uh, Gerard made the observation that relationships, um, friendship has been shattered to the extent in our society that envy runs unabated. So Solomon here first describes a man who works really, really hard. He works with two hands full of toil and striving after wind. Two hands um, trying to control the future, to try to manage the season that's coming. Uh, an attempt to take even from what his neighbor has. He's driven, not by love, not by friendship, not by companionship, but instead to take and to have what someone else has. Shattering of friendship. And two, he also describes there in verse five, the equal and opposite error. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. So you have envy driving work, and you have a fool who refuses to work. So you have two polar extremes that he explains here. One is not Here's not a man in his work compelled by friendship and love, but instead merely compelled by envy. Here's another man 
He just folds his hands, refuses to work, and ends up devouring his own life, which is what laziness does. Solomon says, instead of this, better is a handful of quietness or, or, or contentment. Here it's, it's, it's speaking to the image here, it's speaking to a heart. It's not leaping at all the next stuff that you can get, or you see your neighbor with the new, say boat, because nobody really wants boats in Colorado, um, with the new boat, and you've got to have the new boat. You've got to have a better boat, or you're going to take his boat. Um, not a heart that's not constantly agitated to want and desire, which, by the way, is incredibly hard in our society. Billions of dollars are being spent to make you want stuff. To make you imagine a life with that. Whatever, the boat, maybe. Just going out there on Sloan's Lake. Your sweet ski boat. Disease-ridden water splashing in your face. Who knows how many bodies are in there. And you want it, even though you know about the water and the bodies and all the stuff. Um, Or a life of absolute leisure where your life is consuming itself and both of them is the destruction of relationship. It leads to people navigating the vapor by themselves. And what he says is better is a heart that's content and a handful of work. So it's a, it's a it's, here's not empty hands with the image of the folding of the hands, but there's work, there's labor, there's toil, but it's toil born out of contentment. It's kind of faithful labor. It's not born out of striving. It's not born out of envy. Instead, it's born in the midst of a kind of contentment, quietness of heart. So here's neither laziness nor an envy-riddled life, but work and contentment. Next section, starting in verse 7. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. There is a call to labor, to work, to be fruitful, to produce wealth for the sake of other people. It, like God's design, and this is, um, this hasn't been talked about, I think, enough in churches. It's not merely that you would do hard work, but, but that you would do hard work, and in doing so, you'd produce wealth. And that the design of God is that wealth would go to providing for and nurturing and building more fruitfulness in a family. I think it's strange that, like, how, how little we hear about that in the church. But, like, this is actually the way God designed it to be. The, the goal of your labor, the thing that should drive you to work, is not endless work in order to just never have enough. In other words, the discontentment and the envy that he just spoke of. But instead, it's to look around, it's to wake up, um, maybe men, to wake up Monday morning to talk to your wife and to talk to your son and to go to work in order to invest in them. Now, now, 
Some people would tell you like the great danger of selfishness and greed and um, would, would try to give you some pious sounding words about what to do with, with money and how you really shouldn't be accumulating wealth for your family and, and any of that kind of thing. That's, that's all, it's not fine. I was going to say it's all fine and dandy, but it's not fine and dandy. It's actually just false. This is the design of God. It's okay to work so that your kids can have wealth. It's not just okay, it's actually good. It's by God's design. Like you should be motivated to your work not in order um, to satisfy some uncontentable state. In order to have what your neighbor has or to simply advance and to get more and more and more and more and more to never see the end of wealth. That's bad. That's vanity. That's vapor. But what's good is you'd look at your family and then you'd go to work desiring to serve them, desiring to produce wealth for them, to try to secure a fruitful future for them. But if you don't have that, if all you have is the drive for endless wealth, if you have no one around you, um, no sort of avenues of generosity to your family, to the next generation, or or even to, 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 to neighbors and to friends, that's bad. Do not navigate the vapor alone. You need a purpose for your work to have meaning. That purpose can be simple as a son or a brother. You need companionship. You need friendship for the sake of work um, and and the, the purpose of work. You need companionship. You need friendship. Um, for the sake of, of having someone to comfort you. And you need companionship because of, he says three things in verses 9 through 12, why you need friends, why you can't navigate the vapor alone. One, if you fall, you have someone to lift you up. Now the presupposition in that statement is you're going to fall. (laughs) There's a lot of good news here in Ecclesiastes. You have grief coming, you're going to mourn, and you're going to fall. Now, language of fall um, is used often in Scripture to refer to sin, to fall into sin. Uh, Also, it refers to falling into oppression or falling into nets set by those who are trying to trap you. It also can mean you're just out working a field and you fall. Real simple. And it's really, really nice to have someone there in all of those cases who can pick you up. One of the purposes of friendship, one of the necessary purposes of friendship, as we navigate the world described in chapter three, is you would have brothers around you who will pick you up. Two, Two lie together and they keep warm. But how can they keep warm alone? Here again is this language of comfort. Sometimes it's cold. You need someone next to you. Third, someone attacks you. I don't care how strong and skilled you are in jujitsu. It will always be helpful to have someone else there with you. Again, presupposed in this example of why you need companionship, 
In the first one, there was, you're going to fall. In this one, in the second one, you're going to get cold. In the third one, people are going to try to kill you. <laughs> They're going to attack you. Um, I would love to tell you that this world is a nice, peaceful one where everyone just wants to get along, live and let live. That is not the world we live in. That's not the world that Jesus describes. I mean, it's not the state of the world that we're in. We're actually being attacked. You will be attacked. You will, um, people will try to get you. And that might be spiritually, it might be physically. But either way, it will be better if there are other people beside you who care about you. And it might be good if they know jujitsu. So, we have the comfort offered when you're in a state of oppression. We have a purpose that grounds our work. So our work is not just this endless pursuit of wealth and envy. We have these three places where you can get help. You can get comfort. You can be defended. And then we have a weird, possibly autobiographical story in verses 13 through 16. Here is a king, a king who's gotten old and stubborn. I think this is Solomon talking about himself, maybe chuckling to himself as he describes himself, such that he no longer listens to his advisors. He no longer has peers that he leads with, Friends that he can count on and lean on to provide good counsel. He no longer um, can hear their good counsel. And he also noticed the, the other thing in this text. There is a number of people that he's leading that can't be counted. So here's a situation that Solomon's describing. An old king who's ruled, who's led and has lots and lots of people around him. But he has no true companions. He no longer has true friends that he can count on and lean on and receive counsel from. And he looks at that and he said, and here comes a young man. And the young man now is going to lead. He's going to be the new king. He's surrounded by people. But a day will come when he's just as forgotten and just as isolated and just alone as Solomon is. So here's the last place where you need companionship. I don't care what you're leading. You need brothers and sisters around you that you can receive counsel from, that you can lean on, that you can count on, that you can trust. I don't care if there's a ton of people around you. I want to know, do you have friends? So husbands and fathers on this Father's Day, are there brothers in your life? In, in, as you exercise leadership in your home, do you receive counsel? Do you have brothers that you conspire together about how to lead more faithfully and lead well? Or are you isolated and alone and soon to be forgotten? So Solomon says we cannot navigate the world, the world of vapor, the world of directed vapor under the hand of God by ourselves. We need people for comfort. We need to to, to reject envy, to be compelled by a genuine love for other people in our work. We need the benefits of companionship, of other people who will fight alongside us and pick us up when we fall and help us be warm when we're cold. 
And even as we exercise leadership, you should not lead alone. A couple of applications to work with as we close. First, we must learn to worship together. One of the things I'm most grateful for right now in our church body, and, and I'm, I'm, nothing I'm about to say is meant to say this isn't true for the women, but I, I'm particularly thankful for it um, as I consider what God has wrought and is still building in our church community among the men. It, there is a kind of camaraderie and brotherhood and friendship in our church among the men um, that's not merely circumstantial. It's not merely through kind of shared interests, um, but rather I think it, it is intimately tied to the fact that we gather in this room and we worship the triune God together and, and we are all committed to leading our families and working in our jobs and, and doing this work together. And, and God has knit us together and, and is knitting us together in, in this church in ways that are really, really exciting to me. Over the last few years, I've watched men in our church go from despondent and alone to surrounded by friends, and in that process, begin to lead their homes, begin to lead their families, begin to care for their wives, um, begin to take their careers seriously, not because they're driven by envy, but neither are they controlled um, but by laziness but working hard at their jobs, working hard at, the, at the, um, the responsibilities God has given them as a husband and a father. That's not despite what God has built in this church along the lines of companionship and friendship. It's because of it. And it's tied to the fact that we, are, our, our whole life together, whatever different forms it takes, whether uh, that was, we, we called it security team training, but really it was guys with guns having fun together, um, or it was be a good man night, or it was all the, the, the cigars and whiskey night, and all the other stuff we do as a church. What ties all of that together for our men is that we gather in this room with our families, with our friends, with our neighbors, and we sing songs of the glory of God, and we remember the grace of God given to us in the cross, um, and we hear the word proclaimed and try, um, try our best to, to, to obey it and believe it and trust it um, and live in light of it. And we come to this table week in and week out and eat this bread and drink this wine. And all of this is working together to knit us together as friends and companions. And men, you were not meant to navigate the vapor alone. But with friends and companions counselors so first point of application keep doing that Um, the, the meaning and the purpose of our worship together is not simply so that you will be spiritually entertained I didn't word that quite right it is not so that you will be spiritually entertained that's a better way to put it Instead, it is that God is, as, he, as Paul says in Ephesians, he is knitting us together. He is building us together as a dwelling place of the living God. It's not simply to meet your individual needs, but rather so that we, as brothers and sisters, as a family, built on the work of Jesus, adopted into the family of Abraham, might walk together. Second, work together and work for others. Here is permission, 
permission from the Bible. When you go to work tomorrow, it's okay to be motivated by the desire to accumulate wealth and use it to better your family, your sons and your brothers, to use the language of this text. If you're motivated by the endless need to accumulate more wealth, repent. If you're motivated, as is far more often the case in our city, um, by the need to, 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 find, to try to create just enough space for you to have as much fun as you possibly can, repent. Go to work and work hard tomorrow. God has given you the work that he's given you to do tomorrow for your good as a gift It's part of the vapor that's coming at you as a gift. Now go and do that work and do that work well and invest that money. Invest that money for the benefit of others. In other words, for the sake of love. Wealth and love are not mutually exclusive. Wealth is to be a mechanism, a means, one means, not the only means, one means by which you serve and love other people, particularly In this text, your family. So, do that work, and do that work embedded in a network of relationships. Three, help us, um, let us learn how to live life together. To be aware of enough of of what's going on with your spouse. Be aware of uh, enough of what's going on with other friendships in this community so that when they fall, you're there to pick them up. When they're cold and they need comfort, um, you, can, um, you can provide warmth. When they're being attacked, and I include there all forms of attack, you can be the guy or the woman who knows jujitsu. Ju- I guess women know jujitsu. That you can fight alongside them, defending your brothers. And last, as we prepare for communion, I would remind you of this. That Jesus endured the cross for our sake alone. Jesus, um, the gospel writers tell us, but was ultimately betrayed and he was ultimately tried and killed because of the envy of others. He did this that we might come to him. He he did this that he might bring us to himself and he did this that he might bring us to one another. He, He purchased us that we might know him and have communion with him, be his brothers and sisters and friends for all time. And he did it that we might be knit together as brothers and sisters in the church. Walking together comforting one another, defending one another, encouraging one another, providing counsel to one another. Let's pray and prepare for communion.